Hey friends, before we jump into the podcast today, I wanted to let you know of an opportunity we're having here at Northern. It's our Northern Open House on November 15th from 6 to 8.30. This will be an opportunity for you to hear the heartbeat of Northern, what we're all about, meet some of the incredible faculty and staff, as well as hear some perspectives and experiences from other students at Northern. Um, not to mention a cap- campus tour uh, to see all that is on Northern's beautiful campus. Um, but this isn't just for people who would come to our physical campus. If that's a challenge for you, no worries. We have an entire learning platform online called Northern Live, and this open house will be available um, for you to log in on Northern Live and experience it that way as well. So if you're interested in a seminary education and would like to learn more how Northern equips the church to change the world, um, please take a chance of this opportunity and register online or learn more at this webpage here. It's seminary.edu slash news slash 0816. Again, that's seminary.edu slash news slash OH16. Register, learn more there. Um, Not to mention, I almost forgot... Just by coming to this open house, you have a chance to win a scholarship uh, and an Amazon gift card just by coming. So uh, we look forward to seeing you there for our open house on November 15th from 6 to 8.30. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today for an episode, we're talking about the lost books of the Bible. Well, Scott, as I you know, said, the, the title being The Lost Books of the Bible, really what we kind of want to focus on are what are those books that um, are in some of, if you have maybe a Catholic Bible, they're, they're in there uh, in between the New and Old Testament? Or also, what are these books that sometimes uh, other scholars will talk about that uh, are the Gospel of Thomas or these other early writings that seem to reflect and talk about Jesus in ways um, that aren't always the exactly same way as are in our Gospels or other New Testament writings. So um, I guess kind of with that set up, uh, and r- the longest question maybe I've ever asked on the podcast, but um, I guess simply put, what's the story on the Apocrypha books in the Bible? Okay, let's use a few words uh, that we need to clarify. But let, let me begin before we get to words like Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha. In The book of Jude in the New Testament, in verse 14, we read, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. And then he says, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones and uh, to judge everyone and to convict all. And and this is this is language from a non-New Testament manuscript. And um, it is it is language from uh, a book called Enoch or First Enoch, and, and and so here we have already in the New Testament one of the authors of the New Testament quoting a book that is not in the New Testament, and uh, it's it's usually connected to First Enoch uh, chapter sixty. Um, Scott, what was that New Testament quote that you said was? Quoting Jude, 
Jude, How Jude, does. Four, Jude 14 through 15. Hmm. So he quotes this. All right. So he's quoting a book that's not in the New Testament. It's not in the Old Testament. It's not in what, what we would call the canon scriptures. Instead, he's quoting um, a pseudepigraphical book and using it to bolster his argument. So let me let me uh, use a few terms. Yeah. Uh, there's sort of uh, layers. The highest layer of books for Christians is the Bible. And we, and this is called the canon. And, and we have 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. There was never any voting on these books. Uh, but these texts affirmed themselves or were recognized as authoritative, divinely inspired books by early Christians, by Jews prior to Christians, and the Old Testament was divided into the law, the prophets, and the writings. Um, it's not often known, but the Old Testament in the Jewish writings ends with Second Chronicles. Mm. It does not end with Malachi. Uh, and the there are two kinds of prophets, the, the, the sort of historical writing prophets, like First and Second Samuel and Kings, etc. Uh, and then there's the later prophets, the 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 the, pro the books classically connected to the prophets, like uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Then the minor prophets called the Book of the Twelve. And then there's writings, and that would be Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, etc. Uh, and and where you put Daniel is another issue altogether. But there's a sense in which the old the the Hebrew understanding or the Jewish understanding of the ordering of these books is a, is a semi chronological ordering. As books got added, they got added to the back and not to the beginning. So it begins with mm -hmm. the Pentateuch. Mm -hmm. But books that are not in the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament but are sometimes collected alongside the, New uh, the Bible or between the Old Testament and the New Testament are called Apocrypha. Now, these are books that are considered by, by many people to be of value to the church, but not inspired or not canon, but still useful, like First and Second Maccabees. Yeah. The stories of First and Second Maccabees are very important. The history is very important to understand for what occurred between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's very important for us to understand um, even the social tensions at work in the New Testament. So, and then you have books uh, like Bell and the Dragons connected to Daniel, and you have wisdom books like Jesus Ben Sirach or Ecclesiasticus or the Wisdom of Solomon. So you have other books that are connected to the Old Testament, that are not considered authoritative, but instead are considered books that are of use to the church. They, It is good for the church to read these alongside the Old Testament in order to understand religion, society, theology, and history. But they are not authoritative books upon which we are to base our theology. 
Now, can, just, I, okay, can I ask go, a qu- yeah. quick question, Scott? So um, when the Apocrypha books get included in a, a Catholic Bible, is the Catholic understanding of these books the, the same as the definition you just gave, of a, that they're a value to the Church, but they're not inspired? Or do they see the First and Second Maccabees and these Apocrypha books that we're talking about as inspired and to be read with the rest of the Old Testament? Well, it uh, depends what you mean by the Catholic Church. But yes, yeah. the official Catholic teaching is that these books are not uh, not authoritative, okay. um, uh, but they're read alongside. Yeah. And, you know, the Greek, the Greek Orthodox have a slightly different list than the Protestants have mm-hmm. and the Roman Catholics have of what can what is to be considered apocryphal books. So, um they are, they are, you know, they're a part of the biblical tradition. Yeah. They carry on the biblical tradition, um, but that they are not, uh, they are not as authoritative as the others. I think that's the way, that's the way to describe it. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Protestants use the word apocrypha mm-hmm. for books that, uh, the Catholics included in their Bible that shouldn't have been included in the Bible. Uh, I don't think it's quite fair. The Orthodox have have used these books as well, but they're not seen at the same level. So let's just say there's. I've looked at two levels. First, mm-hmm. there's the level of the Bible mm-hmm. seen as inspired and authoritative for the the all of it for the whole church. Then the Apocrypha books that the Protestants will consider useful for reading and useful for context and for information. Uh, but not inspired, and many Protestants think, therefore, should be snipped from the Bible and published separately. Although, uh, like the NRSV publishes a, um, a a Bible that has the Old Testament Apocrypha in it, but so we have the Bible, and then we have Apocrypha, and then we have Pseudepigrapha. Okay. The Pseudepigrapha are writings that are, in a sense, falsely attributed to names in the Bible who did not write those books. So first and second Enoch were not written by Enoch in the book of Genesis, but were attributed to him by a later writer. So these are called, these are all gathered together in something called pseudepigrapha. And that means technically false, false writings. Uh, it is very interesting that in um, biblical interpretation, the pseudepigrapha have been raised in their significance, very interesting, for New Testament studies, because it provides uh, sort of the social, theological, religious, and uh, ethical uh, and moral worldview out of which the New Testament arises, not least of whom uh, would be Jesus and the apostles, uh, Paul and Peter, John, Jude. Uh, all these texts uh, betray, con- uh, and, and these figures, betray some connection to some of this o- Old Testament pseudepigrapha. So you have Sibylline oracles and the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs and the Book of Jubilees and the Letter of Aristius and a book called The uh, Assumption of Moses 
all these books uh, have value for understanding uh, the biblical context. So with the new with the pseudepigrapha, was it always the understanding from the the readers of those texts that, of course, this wasn't written by the person that this is attributed to, or was it something that through study, you know, years down the road, we've gone through our steps to be able to determine, well, this is clearly um, falsely attributed to this person. What was that process like to determine that? Well, uh, this is a, this is an interesting question because uh, Chaz, uh, the the question comes from the angle of of a Protestant canon. Yeah. So in other words, once we believe in our canon, then we know these books are not ours. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't always quite that simple. These were a part of of the Jewish tradition of sacred books, books that were of value to read, so that Jude can quote. Uh, first Enoch. All right, so it's not simply uh, that they knew they were falsely attributed. I would say there were uh, undoubtedly there were people who probably thought Enoch wrote them, mm-hmm. and there were other people who knew that Enoch didn't write. Them. You know, Josephus knows awareness, has awareness of things like this. So, or he shows us that Jews did. So, I would say that it would be um, that that they would have recognized these books as having some sacred value, mm-hmm. sort of the way we look at Calvin's Institutes or Augustine's Confessions or John Wesley's Journal or John Piper's Desiring God or Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline mm-hmm. or Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy. People don't they don't see those as scripture, but they certainly do value them. Yeah. There are books in my life, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer's discipleship book, mm-hmm. that were tremendously influential in my life. And I look at that book as having a sacred value to me. I don't see it as scripture. It's not inspired. I disagree with him at times. But at the same time, it's something of value. I think that's the way they looked at these books. I don't think they were all that concern about who wrote it and whether it was plagiarism or claiming false authority and, you know, so therefore should be rejected as deceitful. I don't think, even if they thought Enoch did not write Enoch, and I think most people probably did not think he wrote it in the first century, uh, they, they would still see it as having a religious value to them because it stimulates their belief that God is going to somehow bring justice, and he will bring redemption to the people of Israel. Hmm. Yeah, that's fast. I, that, I think that's a really good way to look at it in the different layers and and how that added value and, and how they, they saw them to be important. Are there any other layers other than the three that you mentioned of the canon, the, uh, you know, the apocrypha, and as well as the pseudepigrapha that would be studied along and, and understood, to, I don't know, have another layer? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, for instance, what do we do with the Dead Sea Scrolls? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are at times, uh, you could say there's a little bit of wisdom literature. You could say there's some, clearly there's some legal literature, there's some prophetic literature, there's some apocalyptic literature. So, uh, uh, but we got here a whole collection of books, uh, a massive uh, library that's been discovered with all kinds of things that can help us. My my edition 
of the Dead Sea Scrolls is two volumes, small print, tightly packed, hundreds and hundreds of texts, fragments that have been uncovered. And, um, and then, you know, we have on top of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have something called the Targums. And the dating of the Targums is difficult. But what happened is the Hebrew Bible was read aloud, and then it was sort of transliterated in sometimes quite literal fashion, but other times paraphrased, if not added to significantly, into the more common version of Hebrew called Aramaic. Mm -hmm. So we have the Toset, we have the Targums that are translations and paraphrases of the Hebrew Bible. Then on top of that, then we have the entire rabbinic uh, literature that starts with the Mishnah and then becomes the Tosefta and then becomes the Jerusalem Targum, uh, the Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. Then we have the Midrash, Midrashim, which is a sort of storified interpretation of Old Testament narratives. And we have all this literature that is a part of the uh, is a part of the religious tradition of reading the Bible in the Christian and Jewish Catholic Orthodox traditions, um, but there is a there is a, a clear recognition uh, by Jews that there is a Bible they call it Tanakh, the Torah, the Prophets, and the Writings uh, that is very much like the Christian one, although the order is different. Uh, but they distinguish Scripture from everything that's not Scripture. And Roman Catholics do this, and Orthodox do this, and Protestants do this in differing ways. But there is the recognition that there is inspired scripture, and then there are sacred writings, some of which for some groups, the Orthodox especially, and the Catholics especially, they include in their Bible between, but it would be a secondary level of, of inspired, or a secondary level of religious literature. Oh, that's good. Well, we've kind of so far. Hey, I, I should say that there's New Testament stuff like this. Uh, there are new. There you are read new my Testament. mind. That's where I was yeah. headed with next. So, you know, yeah, the New Testament Apocrypha. The there's, there's apocryphal books in the, for the New Testament. There are other layers. We have the New Testament. Then we have some apocryphal books, apocryphal books on the Gospels that, uh, that were pious, uh, sometimes goofy, sometimes powerfully stimulating stories about Jesus that are not in the New Testament. We have some that come from variant traditions, like the Gospel of Thomas, um, the, uh, the Protoevangelium of James. Then we have other writings in early Christianity that are neither um, uh, New Testament nor apocryphal, like uh, the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, or the Epistle of Barnabas, or First and Second Clement, uh, the writings of of Ignatius, his letters. Those letters are are very, very early, first, second, third centuries, uh, second centuries, and they are useful for understanding earliest Christianity, but they're not authoritative for Christian theology. They're not inspired as something that the church believes in and reads from and preaches from uh, for its Christian worship, but they are still of value. So, Christians have largely the same sort of uh, layering of books of value to the church. So how can devotional readers of Scripture today, um, just as you know, we've talked about in the different layers of, of um, 
maybe these New Testament apocryphal and pseudepigraphal books um, not being inspired, but still useful for our devotional and faithfulness to Christ in, in our life. How can we allow those books to do that when sometimes, you know, we come across things that seem really strange and out of the ordinary of what, what Jesus would say and do, but still see, see value and let, let God bring transformation through us with those books? Well, I would say three things. Uh, the first thing that I would say is I'm, I'm a Protestant, and I hold the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament to be the inspired Word of God. So the apocryphal and pseudepigraphical books, to me, are not inspired and should not be bound as a part of Scripture, though I sure appreciate those books that bind them so I have easier access uh, to the books. Mm -hmm. The second thing I, I would say is these books are of value— Historically, uh, I think it's it's valuable for, say, my students to read some of the wisdom of Jesus Ben Sirach, Ecclesiasticus, as uh, an understanding of how the Jewish wisdom tradition developed. I think it is valuable historically for my students and for Christians uh, who are interested in biblical interpretation to read, say, First Enoch or the Dead Sea Scrolls to find out historical interpretation. The third value, and I think that this is even uh, one of the most important things, is to see how they read the Old Testament. Most of these books are interacting with the Old Testament. So the Son of Man of Daniel 7 is a fascinating figure. Who is this? Why is the Son of Man the way he is? Well, you get to First Enoch and you see this Son of Man appear again. And you realize they've taken Daniel 7, they've interpreted Daniel 7, and they've taken it in the, in the direction of a heavenly figure uh, who seems to be connected to the Messiah. At least many people read it that way. And then you get to the New Testament, and you see Jesus picking up Son of Man, and you wonder, is Jesus reading Daniel 7 in light of the kind of tradition that develops in First Enoch? Does he see himself as Messiah in, uh, in the term son of man. So I think that these books allow us, I, I could add a fourth, uh, I think they allow us, uh, they remind us of what is the Bible and what's not. So I, I don't like binding them together, and I wouldn't use them for devotional reasons uh, that way. Sure. They help us understand the historical context of the New Testament and of Jesus, and they help us see how the Old Testament itself was being read by other Jews at the time. But the fourth thing is that uh, I think that then that on top, uh, after all that, we can see them in their uh, religious groping and questing for answers to problems uh, that they see in their day in light of what they believe the Old Testament teaches, that all of a sudden, you know, they're trying to work out the faith of Daniel or the faith of Isaiah or the faith of Moses, or the wisdom of Solomon. They're trying to work this out in their own day in fresh ways. And this gives us, uh, at many times, insight. I have many times been blessed beyond measure reading the rabbis' Haggadic stories. I have been blessed many times reading the Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha, the courage of the Maccabee boys, uh, can never be denied by someone who reads First and Second Maccabees. The wisdom 
of the Jewish tradition that blows uh, uh, into new new ways in Fourth Maccabees or in Ecclesiasticus. Um, the courage of the Dead Sea Scroll community, all these things then can remind us of the significance of our faith and how we live it out uh, without at all diminishing the significance of canon and without uh, minimizing the sacredness of our scripture, we can still learn theologically and grow spiritually by being in contact with these books. Yeah, it kind of seems like they're almost uh, a glimpse and an example of somebody doing contextual theology live live time, you know, in real time. And yeah, you can look everything. back and see that. Uh, I grew up in the 70s theologically. So, you know, you can date me on eschatology. And at the time, uh, there were there was a lot of conservative evangelicals obsessed with prophecy and eschatology in the New Testament. And the book that was selling uh, millions of copies was by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. And when I was in college, my teacher, Dr. Joe Crawford, said in class that we should read First Enoch and realize it, that it was the late great planet Earth of the first century. And to the degree that we can gain value from books like the late great planet Earth, I don't, I don't find it of any use anymore. Um, but say Richard Foster or Dallas Willard, whoever you read, mm-hmm. um, there were books like that in the Jewish world and in the early Christian world. The early Christians valued the Didache. They valued First Clement. They valued the letters of Ignatius spiritually as books that brought them encouragement and strength uh, to live their Christian life in the Roman Empire as martyrs, potentially, and it helped them uh, live better lives. So I would encourage people to read some Apocrypha, some Pseudepigrapha uh, of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and some Dead Sea Scrolls as well. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, any closing thoughts for uh, our listeners as we wrap up this episode? Well, it reminds me, Chaz, that uh, we sometimes forget this, that uh, the New Testament was not dropped from heaven the way Mormons uh, believe in the uh, golden tablets. Mm -hmm. The New Testament emerged in a vibrant and vibrating society where religious ideas were on the loose, running here and there, to and fro that there were great disagreements between people, that the texts of the New Testament reflect that world, and anything we can read that puts us back in touch with that first century world is going to help us become more sensitive readers of the New Testament, and therefore more sensitive to the relationship of context and, and, and the gospel. And that's going to provide a paradigm for us of how the early church work things out in their context can become the paradigm for you and me for how to work out the gospel in our context. And how we work out the gospel in our context is what Kingdom Roots is all about. Well, we hope our conversation today has been helpful for you. As always, uh, we'd love to get the opportunity to hear from you how this podcast is uh, affecting you and helping uh, you allow the gospel to take root in uh, your church, in your life, and walk with Christ. Um, 
please take a chance to drop us a review and wherever you get this podcast as well as uh, subscribe to it so you don't miss our upcoming conversations on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 